and they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers. King Asa had come to the throne in 911 BC. Judah has been much plagued by idol worship. And so Asa has been carrying out a spiritual reformation of his kingdom. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin, along with some godly exiles from the northern kingdom of Israel, seek to engage in a corporate act of repentance, national repentance before the Lord. Notice here in this verse 12 how God is described as the Lord God of their fathers. The Lord God of their fathers. A nation should take heed of its godly forebears and learn from them. The attitude in modern Britain is the exact opposite of this principle. Today, mainstream thinking looks down upon the faith of our forefathers and regards it as outmoded, as primitive and as prejudiced. Our present generation is guilty of tremendous pride in looking down upon those who have gone before and in particular in looking down upon this nation's history which has been so influenced by the biblical Christian faith. Here in Asa's time, the nation of Judah enters into covenant to seek the Lord, the Lord God of their fathers. Now, we also read here at this time, in verse 13, Whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. Now the law of Moses, as laid down in Deuteronomy 17, enforced the death penalty for idolatry and going after false gods. And that was what God decreed during the Old Testament period, not for all the nations of the world, but for the one nation of Israel, that false religion going after false gods and idols was punishable by death. We must remember that Old Testament Israel 
was a unique theocracy where God had specially revealed himself to one particular nation. And so this nation possessed unique privileges in respect of the presence of God in her midst. Therefore, the obligations upon this nation were far greater than on other nations. And the consequences of defying God's laws were administered directly in this life through the magistrate. Now, under the new covenant, whilst the laws of any country should certainly reflect God's laws, there is no longer a purely theocratic nation where God directly administers his earthly justice. Now amongst the Gentile nations, uh, the Lord, of course, requires obedience, but he has chosen not to require the enforcing of moral and spiritual obligations by means of civil penalties. So, for example, we no longer administer the Old Testament law in respect of the sin of adultery. Uh, nevertheless, we learn from that Old Testament law just how seriously God regards that sin, even in our own day. Now we read of the people here in verse 14, and they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice, and with shouting, and with trumpets, and with cornets. So here we witness a formal national swearing of an oath by the people, to be obedient to the one true God. Such a national turning to God can hardly be comprehended, can it, in our own day? What a blessing to the nation this was. How mightily the Holy Spirit was working. We see here that there is shouting and the blowing of trumpets when a nation returns to the Lord, it is indeed a time for rejoicing. As we read in Psalm 33 and verse 12, Psalm 33 verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. And verse 18 of that psalm, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. And so the people are rejoicing that they are under the protection of the Lord. So we read in verse 15, And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart, and sought him with their whole desire. And he was found of them. And the Lord gave them rest round about. And so here we see that large numbers of people in the land 
are seeking God and finding him. The Holy Spirit is indeed moving with great power. A true work of grace is taking place in the hearts of many. And let us also note in this verse 15 that a primary consequence of the national repentance is a period of social stability and the absence of war. The Lord gave them rest round about. We thus learn the vital principle that war and other forms of national affliction are aspects of God's providential control of his creation. It is the Lord who controls the affairs of nations. And the great tragedy of our own day is that so few people realise that. They think that it is the skill and ingenuity of men which determines the well-being of nations. Verse 16. And also concerning Maaka, the mother of Asa the king, he removed her from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa cut down her idol and stamped it and burnt it at the brook Kidron. Now we have a reference here to the woman called Meaka. She is the mother of Abijam, who was the king before Asa. She continued during Asa's reign to retain the post of Queen Mother, although she was actually Asa's grandmother. But we see here that Asa had to depose her from the office of Queen Mother because of her idolatry. Asa's own mother had probably died at an early age, and so... Meaka, his grandmother, carries on with the role of queen mother, but Asa has to depose her because she worships a false god. She had made herself an image of the god called Asherah, who was a Canaanite mother goddess. Because of this royal promotion of false worship, she had to be removed from her official duties. Images to the goddess Asherah looked like trunks of trees, which is why we have a reference here to the idol being in a grove. This action against the Queen Mother is particularly commendable in that Asa 
does not allow family considerations to mar his zeal in upholding the laws of God. So there must be no public condoning of idolatry from those in power, in leadership, in government. And so a great spiritual work is taking place in the nation. Sadly, it was not as thorough as it might have been. Uh, We read in verse 17, but the high places were not taken away out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was perfect all his days. Now, what does this term high places mean? Now, we are not to think of altars on hilltops dedicated to idols, but the focus here in the term high places is to unlawful altars dedicated to the worship of Jehovah, the God of Israel. Now, these were also being placed on the tops of hills in emulation of the pagan practice. However, God had ordained that he only be approached at one specific altar, namely that in the temple at Jerusalem. Yet people were engaging in this illegitimate worship in altars that they themselves set up. So even though the worship was directed to the one true God, it was not being directed in the right manner. You see, it is God who ordains how he should be worshipped. It is not for man to introduce innovations into worship, to conform to the spirit of the age, or to conform to the practices and likes of non-believers. When churches start modelling their worship in order to attract non-believers, you can be sure it will end up not being true worship. Now, we learn in this verse 17 that despite Asa's good intentions, his reforms were sadly not effective and far-reaching throughout the land in respect of these hilltop altars to Israel's God, which were thoroughly displeasing to the Lord. Many carried on using them, despite the king's sincerity of heart in desiring to see them abandoned once and for all. Verse 18, we read of Asa that he brought into the house of God the things that his father had dedicated and that he himself had dedicated, silver and gold and vessels. So here we see the king dedicating the spoils of victory in battle to the Lord. There was the victory of his father Abijam over Jehoshaphat, king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And there was also Asa's own victory over the Ethiopians, 
The spoils of these victories were not just used for personal gratification, but they were set aside and dedicated to the Lord. And we read in verse 19, And there was no more war unto the five and thirtieth year of the reign of Asa. There was no more war unto this 35th year. Now, in working out the date of this 35th year, we need to remember that it was a custom after the tragic splitting up of the 12 tribes on Solomon's death to date Judah's monarchs from the beginning of the new kingdom of Judah, which began with Rehoboam, in 931 BC. So the 35th year here refers to the 35th year of the kingdom of Judah being the 35th year from the time of the division of the two kingdoms. So the year in question is actually 896 BC which is 15 years since Asa first ascended to the throne. Now we know from verse 10 of this chapter that this is the year when the formal entering into covenant with God, which we have just read about, took place. Since coming to the throne, Asa has been calling the nation back to the honouring of the one true God. During the first ten years of his reign, there was peace. Thereafter, in the eleventh year, there was the inroad, the invasion of the Cushites or Ethiopians, who launched an unsuccessful invasion of Judah. And after Judah's victory over them, there was rest, there was freedom from war until the 15th year of Asa's reign. Or as it is put here in verse 19, the 35th year since the kingdom of Judah came into being. So, apart from the Ethiopian invasion, which Judah overcame by trusting the Lord, the nation enjoyed an absence of war over a 15-year period. This coincided with, as we have said, a period of national spiritual reformation. So, spiritual reformation, absence of war. What is that teaching us? It is the Trinitarian God who governs the nations, who determines whether they experience peace or war, freedom or affliction from disease, economic prosperity or great dearth and decline of trade. It is God 
who determines these things. Now, in the 16th year of Asa's reign, we are told that war with Baasha, king of Israel, arose. And so there was this 15-year period of peace, an absence of war. But then in the 16th year, uh, there was this danger from the northern kingdom of Israel and hostility. God in his providence allows the northern kingdom to threaten Judah's security. Now here is a test for the erstwhile faithful King Asa. Will he continue to trust the Lord for help? Just as he did five years previously when the Ethiopians invaded. So, as we move into chapter 16 here, we read of this major trial of Asa's faith. Chapter 16, verse 1. In the sixth and thirtieth year of the reign of Asa, remember, that means 36 years from when the kingdom of Judah began, i.e. the 16th year after Asa came to the throne. In this year, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah to the intent that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. So the northern kingdom of Israel builds a fortification at this place called Ramah, which was located in the territory of Benjamin, near to Bethel, not many miles north of Jerusalem. And so the hostile kingdom of Israel, hostile to Judah, now fortifies Ramah to indicate a real threat to Judah's security. Asa is overwhelmed with anxiety. And this formerly faithful king suddenly takes his eyes off the sovereignty of God. Instead, in his panic, he looks around for mere human solutions to deal with the crisis without resorting to the Lord for help. What does Asa do? We read in verse 2. Then Asa brought out silver and gold out of the treasures of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, that dwelt at Damascus. Asa now resorts to the worldly expedient of bribery to gain the help of the king of Syria against Baasha the king of Israel. Now, the king of Syria was one who was more naturally disposed to be Judah's enemy than her friend. And in an especially profane and sinful act, Asa uses the riches of the temple to support his political bribery 
with the king of Syria. Verse 3, saying, There is a league between me and thee, as there was between my father and thy father. Behold, I have sent thee silver and gold. Go break thy league with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. Now Asa is following in the steps of his father Abijam, informing an alliance with the Syrians. What Asa was so worried about was that Israel and Syria had come together. He was worried about their accumulated strength against Judah. So he offers these financial incentives to the Syrians in order to abandon Israel and help him instead. And the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, gives way to this inducement. Verse 4, And Ben-Hadad hearkened unto King Asa, and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. And they smote Ijon and Dan and Abel-Mayim and all the store cities of Naphtali. And so now, having been bought off by Asa, the king of Syria, inflicts much damage upon Israelite territory. He ravages the store cities of Naphtali. This refers to the very fertile district on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, which, on account of its fertility, might well be called the granary or place of storage of the tribal domain of Naphtali. And so the Syrians ravage this vital agricultural resource of Israel. Uh, they also take the cities of Ijon, Dan and Abel Maim. Abel Maim is another name for Abel Beth Meaka. This town along with the other two towns, is located in the northernmost parts of Naphtali. So these towns are brought into submission by the Syrians. Verse 5, And it came to pass, when Baasha heard it, that he left off building of Ramah, and let his work cease. And so it looks as if, in human terms, Asa, seeking the help of Syria, is working out just as he hoped. Beasha, king of Israel, withdraws his fortifications from the city of Ramah, which was a strategic location. And we read in verse 6, then Asa the king took all Judah and they carried away the stones of Ramah and the timber thereof wherewith Bashar was building. And he built therewith Geba and Mizpah. And so Beasha's withdrawal 
gave Asa an opportunity not only to demolish the Syrian fortifications, but to seize the materials and convert them to his own use. He improved the defences at two locations called Geba and Mizpah. Geba was some seven miles to the north of Jerusalem, and Mizpah was close to Ramah, and they were both within the tribe of Benjamin. So Asa is successful in consolidating the nation's security in respect of this threat from Baasha. But did he employ the right methods in doing so? Was it God's will that Asa bribe the king of Syria using treasures from the temple? Did the end justify the means? The reality was that Syria was Judah's enemy in alliance with Israel. Now Asa temporarily buys off Syria, bribing Ben-Hadad to break off his alliance with Israel. But his diplomatic scheming was a faithless substitute for seeking God's help. And the Lord is angry with Asa. Asa has foolishly trusted in a human alliance in a time of national danger instead of turning to the Lord. So the Lord sends a prophet to Asa to rebuke him. Verse 7. And at that time... Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said unto him, Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. The reality was that the Syrians were as much a threat to Judah as Israel was. Asa should not have sought their help. The Lord would have seen to it that Judah defeat them both. If only the king had been prepared to remember recent history and how God rescues the nation which humbles itself before him. And so the prophet rebukes King Asa in verse 8. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims a huge host, with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. Asa has quickly forgotten how the Lord had rescued the nation when the Ethiopians along with the Libyans or the Lubims, had invaded with a great force some five years earlier. So this is what the prophet says to Asa in verse 9 of chapter 16. 
For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein hast thou done foolishly. Therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. From henceforth thou shalt have wars. Here in this verse we learn that God is constantly watching the nations. He is watching the heart motivation behind the actions of the leaders of nations. He knows whether they honour him or not. Asa thought that by resorting to human scheming, he could secure peace for Judah. But God tells him the opposite. He says in this verse 9, Thou shalt have wars. So, as we survey this passage, going back to chapter 15 and verse 12, we have three statements about the sovereignty of God over the nations. Firstly, chapter 15, verse 15. The Lord gave them rest round about. The Lord gave them rest round about. Secondly, chapter 15, verse 19. There was no more war unto the five and thirtieth year of the reign of Asa. God decreed that the nation enjoyed a period of peace. Thirdly, this chapter 16 and verse 9. From henceforth thou shalt have wars. What are we being taught here? It is that nations which defy God risk losing peace and stability within their land. Because God is not mocked. Solomon tells us that righteousness exhorteth a nation. Matthew Henry aptly comments, National piety procures national blessings. National piety procures national blessings. That is a very simple formula. But it is completely lost on our contemporary generation, which thinks that it can create a better society by defying the laws of God. It really does think that. David speaks of God's power over the nations in Psalm 144. Psalm 144 and verse 10. It is he that giveth salvation unto kings, 
who delivereth David his servant from the hurtful sword. So David acknowledges that military deliverance is at the hand of God. And so David understands the providential consequences of a nation honouring God. And he goes on in that Psalm 144. Psalm 144 and verse 12. David writes that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as cornerstones polished after the similitude of a palace, that our garners may be full, affording all manner of store, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong to labour, that there be no breaking in, nor going out, no crime, that there be no complaining in our streets. Happy is that people that is in such a case. Yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. And so David there in Psalm 144 describes all the national blessings which come from a nation humbling itself before God. He speaks of economic prosperity, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands. You see, economic wealth and well-being is a function of a nation's obedience to God. Now, if someone stood up and said that in Parliament today, they would be laughed at. And of course, the opposite is true. The withdrawal of economic prosperity shows God's displeasure with a rebellious people. And this is why Christians cannot keep quiet about national sins, but must openly challenge them and rebuke them. Because if Bible-believing Christians do not challenge the God-rejecting wickedness of their times, the likelihood of war and other grievous national afflictions becomes much more certain. We have to warn the nation, or else God will send grievous affliction upon us. And indeed, he is already doing so. So if a nation desires freedom from health crises, economic collapse, 
and even war, then it must humble itself before the one true God and come in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. The solution does not lie in the ingenuity of men. The solution lies in repentance and faith before the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the answer to the nation's crisis. Amen.